0: Tech Talk, with Jess Kelly. With VMware, free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit exertis.ie forward slash VMware. This
1: is News Talk.
2: Hello, and welcome to Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, I'll take you inside the Innovation Lab at James's Hospital to hear how technology and design can positively impact the delivery of healthcare. Are you into photography? If so, do you really need an external camera or will your smartphone do? We'll discuss. Plus, IA Labs will explain why accessibility matters and how your website could actually be costing you sales. As ever, you can email the show techtalk at Newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at Jess Kelly NT. Now, as you'll be able to hear, I'm not in the Newstalk studio today. I am, in fact, outside St. James's Hospital in Dublin. This is a vast campus with traffic, trams and a ton of people passing by. But the reason I'm here is because within the Mercer's Institute for Successful Aging Building, is an innovation lab, which is something you may not have expected to find on a hospital campus. I'm here to meet with Dr. Jared Boyle and his team to find out more about what they do. So let's head inside.
0: Jess, you're welcome to the design innovation lab here in the Mesa building in St. James's Hospital. Um, my name is Dr. Jared Boyle. I'm a Principal Physicist in the Department of Medical Physics and Bioengineering at St. James's. A lot of people probably don't realize that most hospitals, well, large hospitals, will have a group of engineers, a group of physicists working in the hospital. Traditionally, the the role has really been in the radiation side of things, so physicists associated with X-ray machines, X-ray systems. As technology developed in hospitals, the a wider group of ex- experts has got involved, so our department would be about thirty thirty five people who look after imaging as the traditional area anesthetics and theater lasers endoscopy and physiological measurement dialysis everything you can you can think of in the hospital. The traditional or original role for engineering in the hospital would have been Uh, maintenance effectively but really as technology develops it's it's much more about user support and helping I suppose helping the clinical people get the best possible uh, out of their technology and making sure regulatory issues are dealt with safety issues are, are dealt with so the way our our team works is our department works is we're Embedded with clinical teams across the hospital, so we're very much front-facing. I guess we're very much exposed to the the, kind of the real-world issues that they're dealing with, mm-hmm. and I, I suppose it was that that kind of frontline exposure um, probably led ultimately to to this this facility here, because here is about really you know understanding and helping uh, clinical people who have ideas that they want to see further developed to solve clinical issues that they are dealing with every day our suppose, stance or motivation as technical people has always been towards design and usability and we always want to build things and make things so this is a suppose, uh, an expression of, of that or uh, growth of that kind of activity. If, if you consider St. James's Hospital, we have maybe 7,000 different pieces of equipment in the hospital. and um, That's a lot of technology that needs to be looked after, make sure it's working, calibrated, make sure the uh, users are happy using it, making sure we're getting value for money from that equipment. Uh, our department really is tasked with uh, making sure the hospital gets best impact out of the equipment make sure it's safe. Um, So effectively it's managing that entire acid base in the hospitals.
2: And so does that involve then when, you know, I'm obviously not a doctor so (laughs) my terminology might not be there, but say for example new ECG machines might come along and they might be great from one aspect but you may not get the longevity out of them or they may not provide data that is Instantly legible or digestible to the doctors. Is it up to you and your team to ascertain what works best from an overall hospital point of view? Yeah,
0: well, yes, as part of the procurement, we would consider those issues. So, um, obviously, the the kind of usability of medical devices is a a huge issue now. There's a much bigger um, appreciation of the risks that's associated with devices that aren't very usable or aren't user friendly. Um, I guess. Part of that understanding is driving the activity here where we're kind of worried about the design of devices and the usability of devices. So our experience in the kind of day-to-day medical device environment has inspired some of the work here.
2: When you say the usability, a a lot of the stuff that I've done around healthcare over the last while has been very patient-centric. It's all about trying to make the experience that bit better for the patient on every level. Are you? Focused on how things are for the staff in the hospitals that are utilising this equipment, as well as the end user being the patient.
0: Yeah, I suppose the the staff can easily get left out of uh, the that, that equation. I suppose what we're what we're doing here, what we've introduced here, is a design engineering design innovation lab for the hospital. So the idea is the people who have real understanding of what technology works and what's what's good design are the are the users so what we've what we've done here which is fairly unique certainly unique in the uh, irish context is crea- create a system or an environment where users can come to us with things ideas they have that they think may improve the uh, day-to-day work that they have so that could be um it could be a complicated medical device, it could be something very simple, some a holder, something that's useful in, in their environment. Um that's a very rich theme of ideas, it's a very rich theme of innovation for the, the health services. It's not really something that's very well tapped in wider health services. So what we've what we've tried to do here is create a I suppose uh ecosystem, if you want to use that word, uh, to allow clinical people who have the best exposure to what they really need to come to us to say, this is a problem we're, we're having, I, I have the germ of a solution here, and um, I don't have the full thing worked out. So we want to be able to give them a system that they can plug into that will provide a I suppose a kind of a runway but is really what we're trying to build. Um, that's a potentially a very long runway if it's, it's going to end up in a, a medical device that might be spun out to the, the wider world. Um, what we, what we're trying to do here is create a. In this particular lab that you're in is a prototype typing environment, so it allows us to take those um, very initial ideas to work them up through and um, a little bit of engineering so you can see the, the things that we have around here are 3D printers, we've got a laser cutter, we've got various machining technologies so it allows us to take those initial ideas and work them up into, into something uh, physical. Now the, our experience of this is the the equipment is one thing and being able to prototype things but what you really need to make this work is design expertise so that's what we've discovered is if you bring together real design expertise and if you bring that together with the, the clinical understanding of, of the need you can get something very powerful. Now I suppose over the last few years we've tended to use external designers so particularly we have a great collaboration with uh, NCAD which is down the road here. Mm-hmm. However we've moved up a level now and we now have our own internal uh, design person. So.
2: And we're going to meet that internal design person in just a quick second. But one thing that strikes me is that this is very much uh, a business focused idea in terms of you're asking the staff to almost be entrepreneurs. So find a flaw, come up with the germ of an idea for a solution, and then facilitate the testing, the creation, and hopefully the rollout of that that solution. That's something that must be an investment from the hospital's point of view, because this type of innovation i would imagine there's a lot of trial and error
0: yeah yeah sure i mean it's it's something our ceo was really kind of bought into and uh, appreciates the the real need for the health system to innovate and an element of innovation is the the physical things that dev- design, the, the devices um so some of the things that will go through this lab probably will end up in a commercial scenario. So one of the things that we are trying to construct as we, as we build this ecosystem is the methodology for handing over ideas to external companies to get them commercialized. We probably will have instances where individual um, clinicians, nurses, physios, whatever, may want to take an idea and see it fully to completion to see it manufactured and uh, out there in the world I think a lot of a lot of um, clinical people are just happy to see the idea come to fruition and will be happy to maybe even just have the solution developed locally so that we can we can use it locally the things with bigger scale potential would have to go external would have to go to um, uh, external manufacturer we, we've a little bit of experience on that route we, we do some and work with TCD. TCD is our university, so we have instances in the past of items going out to commercialization or out to spin out. So, but not everything will fit that model. Some things will fit that model. Other things will be much more uh, local.
3: My name is Moira Kane, and I'm a designer in residence here at St James's Hospital. I kind of went into I went to the National College of Art and Design in Dublin, and I studied um, product design. And then from there you do a placement year. Um, you can do choose you know whichever design company you want to work with. So I decided to do um a design placement with a biomedical um company. So it's a design consultancy based in Dublin. And yeah, I worked there for a year, and I realised then I really like the sort of medical device um side of product design. Following that, I. Um, went on after college and I did a master's in medical device design so I was really sort of um, specialising um, straight after college and then kind of went in then to um, a startup company as well um, for, for the design in a medical device also and then the opportunity c- came here to um, work in hospital I knew that I really wanted to kind of work with patients and staff and see that side of things also so that's it
2: must be interesting to hear the direct feedback from the people using the equipment on a day-to-day basis and does that spark something in your brain as a designer when you hear it from the people who are using it every day versus just getting a blueprint or whatever it might be on a piece of paper
3: yeah i think that's what's so unique i suppose about working here is that you're just so close to the end users and um, like even on projects we're working on at the moment you're able to do you know of very informal usability testing so quickly and then that can you know that informs the design and you can go back and change the design slightly and and very quickly then go back and ask the users what they think of it and i think that's what's really um what's really helpful i suppose in the design process which um it's yes unique because you don't often get that um feedback you know so quickly and throughout the process
2: yeah, very often you'd have to do like external market research to get that level of feedback. But you are on a campus that is so vast, and I'm sure you have access to brilliant brains and people who, as we heard a second ago, you know want this end result. They want the benefits of better design. Can you give me some examples? Because I'm lucky in that I've not spent a whole lot of time in hospitals, so I wouldn't necessarily have a strong opinion on day-to-day things, whether that is the PPE, whether that is the equipment, basic things like light switches, anything like that. Can you give me some examples that you've worked on or are currently working on that have benefited from your brain and that design attitude?
3: Yeah, so um, even at the moment, we're working on a project with a Bernie Waterhouse and Tony Galvin. So there's two C&M nurses here at St. James's and they were working on COVID wards during the sort of peak of the pandemic and realised problems with PPE. And particularly with gowns, so they had an idea of improving, uh, you know, the PPE gown and make it easier for staff and also visitors to take off the gown, and that's what we're we're working on a project um still ongoing at the moment with that. So we've done two sort of informal um usability studies in the ward and now we're going on to our third so it's we're kind of getting there almost um, with the the design but I think that that feedback from the the staff has been really beneficial throughout the process.
2: And when something like that comes your way are you told what the issue you're trying to solve is or is it you're given a solution without fully being getting the explanation of, of what the problem is?
3: Um, it can kind of be both, so you can, some people have might have an idea and then you can work on it and you might find that the idea is, you know, great and that, that's exactly what you're going to design or it could be some changes and often there is lots of changes when you do tests and a bit of research and things like that, so it's it, it can kind of be both, but the the research and the, I suppose the feedback is really important to understand the real need um, yeah, so it can, kind of, it can kind of work both ways, I guess.
2: And in terms of somebody who is still early on in their career, it must be really rewarding to know that the work that you're doing is impacting those either on the front line or on the receiving end of the services of those on the front line.
3: Yeah, that that's so true. It's, it's nice because um, often the projects don't run, you know, they're not like what Jared said, some might have to spin out uh, if they're quite long, but others, you can kind of see the impact of them right away, which is really, it's nice to see as well that people are using the products, you know, at the moment and mm-hmm. things like that.
4: So I'm uh, Dr Chris Soren. I'm a senior uh, physicist in St. James's Hospital, so I work in the medical physics and bioengineering department with the rest of the guys here. Um, so yeah, core day-to-day work, similar to, to Jared is is managing the... Uh, medical equipment across the hospital to make sure it's safe and and accurate and that kind of thing. So I suppose about eight years ago we got involved and and were bitten by the bug of design to see how can this really integrate with the engineering and the clinical work that we do in the hospital. So I suppose as as the guys are saying we started to look to staff and we realized they were the experts in what the problems were and things that needed to be solved and we created this weekly design uh, or yearly design event where where staff come with their ideas and we we, we get in some expertise to work on those ideas uh, over a week at Design Sprint. Usually nearly every project and we've learned this over the years you have to kind of bring everything right back so you need to start uh, with the user research and not kind of just go off on on a single idea so you need to go and not only ask the staff what they want but to watch them so you need to observe how they're interacting with their environment how they're interacting with different devices to get to see things maybe that they don't realize themselves that are happening, and that's the kind of design thinking uh, methodology and how it approaches uh, problems by by observations of the user to see you know will this design that the the user themselves will it work or do we need to bring it back a bit further and and to come up with something else? So some of the things can uh, you know can be just a, a simple holder as Jared mentioned. Uh, to, to to help someone on award to be able to to keep something in the same place all the time but in terms of productivity for for maybe a nurse on a ward when they're doing the same thing over and over and over again on, on a day it can add up to a lot of time a lot of waste and frustration so if it's a problem that they've brought forward and it's obviously something that they, they'd like to see a solution to so that it can make a difference so one of the other designs in particular that we were looking at was uh a patient nutrition uh, sign so on the wards in particular there's a lot of signage that needs to go up to highlight if a patient is on a particular diet or if they're fasting for a surgery or if they can only have a certain amount of fluids so there was a patient uh, signage committee established a while ago that uh, had a particular need so we brought the design uh, team in to work on that and uh, came up with what what started out as being maybe a better sign ended up being a physical product that we would put up on the ward that has loads of kind of inserts in it um, and that particular design we've had it manufactured uh, by a company in the UK and we brought it in over the last few weeks so it's currently undergoing a pilot on one of the wards in in James's um, and part of that the reason to do that then is to see are there changes that need to be made so you can't. Fall in love too much with a design. You have to allow it to be able to grow and to, to evolve and to change. And even in the first kind of few weeks that we had that design in, we had to use our laser cutter to change some of the things that we had externally manufactured. So, the tools that we've now have in this uh, lab that that we got sponsorship from the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform, we've been able to use those to to accelerate those designs, uh, kind of live as we're trying them.
2: Mm. And f- Looking at things from a business point of view, so you mentioned there the funding that comes in. What is the, the best return on investment that you can get from every project that you, do, that you go through? Is it that it gets fully adapted in the hospital or is it the case that the research and the work that was done will stand to the entire team for the next time you try to tackle a certain problem?
4: Yeah, so I suppose, like you're, you're saying, there's, there's multiple levels to it. So one is the immediate solution to the problem, It goes in like we had a particular uh, challenge on a COVID ward ward during the pandemic. We put in a simple design and it solved the problem and that was it. So that was an immediate return um, for the the nursing uh, uh, staff on the the ward. In in other cases then, yeah, it might be learnings for each project kind of lends and cross-fertilizes with another project to say this is a new approach that we could take to do this. Um, so then in terms of the, the kind of the more societal kind of change and, and, and the value for money for, for the public uh, kind of investment, you'd be looking at trying to improve the way care is done and is this something that could be shared across the HSE, so a new method of doing things. So the ICU communication board that Moira mentioned is something that we'd like to see rolled out to other ICUs across the country rather than just something that's, that's done here. So that's the kind of value that we're looking to achieve, I think.
2: One of the things that came to light both during the pandemic and in the wake of the ransomware attack was the need for investment in our health service and how important it is, but also how just doing things the way they've always been done isn't necessarily the best way to do things. And innovation and accepting that innovation is important. Do you get good buy in when a member of your team goes up to a healthcare uh, provider saying, look, this might work? embrace it or is there a bit of a reluctance there or a bit of skepticism sometimes
4: i'd say nearly in, in every single instance we, we haven't had any uh kind of reluctance from staff there might be reluctance about a particular element of a design like that won't work and we think you know the, the way we're doing it might work better but on the on the main in james's anyway there, there tends to be a very good can do let's have a go kind of attitude Mm -hmm. um and you know we've been doing these kind of projects over the last eight years and 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 there never seems to have been uh, a kind of a reduction in that kind of flow of new initiatives and new creativity that staff want to bring to their work because i suppose everyone's coming in here to to provide care to patients and they want to do it in the best way possible that's the 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 idea Mm
2: -hmm. and how beneficial has it been having a a designer in-house now that um is full-time based here
4: yeah, I mean, it's it's I suppose you could say it's a game changer for us in, in that, you know, we, we've had this annual design week event, which uh, it is good to bring things to a certain level. But, you know, design and innovation is a year round activity. And uh, in order to, to kind of uh, generate um, kind of continual output, you needed to have that resource on site to be able to bring that design expertise because it is a distinct uh, kind of expertise um that uh, brings a new approach to solving problems.
2: That was the team at the Design Innovation Lab in St James's Hospital. I have to say, I was blown away by the setup that they have, but also the nature of the projects they're working on. Some of the bits and pieces are so simple, but as I heard, you know, could save the hospital workers 20 minutes per patient. And that time could be transformational. Um, So when we're talking about innovation and technology and healthcare, it's not always about software and it's not always about robots. Sometimes it's just about clever design. Um, I really enjoy that. So thanks so much to to the team uh, for having me out and for showing me the Innovation Lab. Uh, A quick reminder, you can get in touch with us at any stage here on Newstalk, Talk at newstalk.com is the email address. But when we come back, we're going to hear how your website could actually be losing sales for your business. Tech Talk
0: on News Talk.
2: With VMware. Free your employees to work more securely from anywhere. Visit
0: exercise.ie forward slash VMware.
2: Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Tech Talk at NewsTalk.com is the email address if you'd like to get in touch, or you'll find me on Twitter at Jess Kelly NT. On Wednesday, uh, Minister of State for Disability Anne Rabbit was at the launch of the digital Accessibility Index. Uh, This was developed by IA Labs. And there's some really interesting stats in it that kind of made me sit up in my seat. Uh, One of which is that 72% of leading Irish companies do not have accessible websites. Now, accessibility is something that we've spoken about on this programme before with the likes of the NCBI, uh, Sinead Burke on our very first programme way back when we started but it's clear that we still have a lot more work to do uh, in relation to this. And I am delighted to be joined on the line now by Kyron O'Mahony, who is the founder of IA Labs. Uh, Kyron, you're very welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thank you very much for having me today.
2: Um, so before we jump in and talk through the index, will you just tell us a little bit about IA Labs?
1: Yeah, so uh, IA Labs, our inclusion and accessibility labs, was was founded really with a, a single purpose. And that really is to help kind of companies... Uh, both public and, and private companies to uh, support them on their journey towards digital um, inclusion. And really what that means is that we're here to offer advice, support and training around how to make websites and mobile applications accessible to people with disabilities and all disabilities as well. And I think that's so important now and this this research that you refer to is a real indicator that we're in the start of a journey towards having an inclusive digital society in Ireland.
2: I am slightly shocked, as I said there, that the the stats are kind of as stark as they are because we've been hearing about, um, you know, the need for accessibility for all kinds of disabilities for quite some time. And yet we're still at the stage where basic things like websites aren't fully accessible. Can you just, for those who've never really contemplated because they're fortunate enough to not to have to, um, you know, contemplate it, will you just outline some of the ways in which websites are not accessible and what small changes could be made to make them accessible?
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, so there's, as you know, there's all different types of disabilities out there so whether someone has sight loss or maybe they have hearing loss or um, uh, they have a motory issue or a cognitive issue or something like that so there's a set of 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 standards that exist to support people around how you can you know follow a set of guidelines to make a website or mobile application uh, accessible for example if there's an image on on a website you know that image might say you know Uh, You and I who have have sight will see it and go, oh, that's a picture of a man. But there's a way to add alternative text to an image that will allow someone that doesn't have vision when they go to that website and a screen reader reads that back to them, that will say this is an image of a man. So it's very important for little tweaks like that to happen on on websites to ensure people that mightn't have the same. Um, uh, same type of vision as you, or the same type of hearing as you, that they have those type of um, uh, features on a website to allow them to use it the same as as anyone else. And it, what's interesting as well is that we found when you know when we talk to a lot of companies, everyone has a huge, you know, um, no one. No one doesn't want their site or so no one wants their site to be inaccessible. There's a great appetite for uh, all companies out there to 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 make their websites accessible. But what we're trying to do is say it's not a complex thing to do, but it's a very worthwhile thing to do. You know, like something like adding, you know, all text to a piece of HTML is very, very basic stuff, but it has a huge impact to people with disabilities as well
2: and is it not being done because it's just not being thought of or is like like if it's just adding in a little bit to a piece of code surely it's not going to cost a whole uh, lot of money as well to do so it's not that it's expensive it's not that it's complex is it just that we don't think about it
1: Do you know what? Before I joined um, IA Labs and I I work as the Chief Technology Officer in NCBI, I I ran many teams where we would have built websites and and, and mobile applications in the past. And and I suffer from sight loss myself. I have only about 17% vision. And when I was working with development teams and we'd be building whatever the website was, And I'd always say, listen, it's very important that we make this website accessible. But as you know, in in, in development things, you know, there's always a timeline, there's always budget, there's always things like that that tend to get prioritized. And, you know, they should. So what what we've found is that accessibility tends to come at the end of a project. And then people think, well, we'll OK, we'll get our website live or we'll get our mobile application live, and then we'll fix it in the next issue or the next release. And then that tends to be, you know, the release after that and the release after that. And then you get to a point where... It might be forgotten about so what's what we're really trying to do here in in i labs is kind of reinforce the importance of it you know and reinforce the importance of of making the website accessible and raising the awareness that it, it is a thing to do because I don't think any, as I said earlier, I don't think any company or developer out there wants to make an accessible website. It just sometimes it falls to the cracks in terms of any you know development process. So it is something that you know we're here to to help with. We're here to run through and you know whether it's a, a couple of days development work, depending on the size of the of the website, of course, or the mobile application. It's something that can be done and have huge impacts for people with disabilities.
2: It seems to me that this is something that. Uh, could be rectified if you had different people with different abilities around the table at the the, the time of conception, basically. Because if you have people that can instill that, you know, you almost have an element of accessible by design. We're we're hearing a lot now at the moment about privacy by design and the importance of that. But this seems to be something that if you get it right from the outset, you're saving yourself a, a bit of work down the line. But you're also then you know, helping a whole ton of people who could benefit from from something that's relatively simple.
1: Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, I mean, it, the sooner you embed, <clears throat> excuse me, um, the sooner you embed uh, accessibility into your development process, the easier it is to, to deploy it. And one of the things we would say, you know, in terms of accessible by design is that if you were, you know, if you were in your UX UX stage of development or even in your, your, your wireframing or whatever the case may be, try and, you know, there's kind of a paradigm shift in terms of your perception. How would that website work? Because a lot of people focus on the colors and you know, the you know, how pretty or how it would apply to a brand guideline when they're doing a website. But how would your website function? if you turned your screen off, mm-hmm. you know, if you had just a blank screen from the start. So it, it is a bit of a shift in think, thinking as part of a, a design process, but it's also very achievable. And one of one of the things that we always say, like if in the process of, of building a website, if you're building it to be, you know, structured correctly, you've good menu structure, you're, you know, following a heading structure, half of the battle is actually covered because you're creating a website that's operable, you know, and it's, it's, it's able to follow um, a logical reading order, for example, that's a big step forward but you know what happens as part of any development cycle you know there's, there's changing requirements and things need to you know go in slightly direction but sometimes what happens in that structure and that that kind of logical order can can fall through the cracks so you know thinking about you know the impacts of that from the very start of a a, a design process and as you said you know inclu- inclusion or accessibility by design you know thinking about it up front will make huge uh, benefits and i think what's what's most important and one of the One of the things that we try to to emphasize as part of the importance of inclusive design is that, you know, if 30% of your customers going to your website or mobile application needs some level of assistive support, that's any, any, you know, any CFO that's out there or any, you know, any commercial or revenue piece that you're, you know, you're trying to generate by having a website making life easier for 30% of your customers is a significant impact, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's a revenue impact or just because, you know, as we all know, having an inclusive website is just the right thing to do.
2: Yeah. One thing I was thinking about this morning as I was on the Lewis Hint the office, I was on a tech retailer website because I was buying myself a little piece of tech. And before I got to the point where I wanted to enter the product I was looking for, First up popped a cookies um, reminder thing. Then popped up a little chat bot going, how can we help you today? Then popped up Mm. the previous product I was looking at. So I had to kind of click through and swat away three or four pop-ups before I got to the part of the website that I actually wanted to get to. Are things like that uh, cumbersome for people who do have um, limited vision or, or are completely vision impaired?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, you've, you've really touched on a on a, on a sore one for, for, for us. I mean, cookie pop ups are notorious for what we call losing focus. So mm-hmm. if I give you an example, when, if you're using a, a screen reader in the situation you described, so the, the screen reader is literally reading all the text and the buttons back to you because you have limited or no vision, what can happen is. You, you're, you're, it's reading go through, you know, this is the product, this is the product description, and here's the, it says this is a button, you know, you know click this button to, to add to cart or whatever the case may be. And a poppy, or sorry, a, a cookie pop-up pops up. What happens is that loses the focus of the screen reader. So you might say, I'll dismiss that. But if the, if the website is implemented poorly from a, a structural point of view, what can happen then is that your focus from the screen reader mightn't be brought back to where you were so it makes it very very difficult for someone with limited vision then to you know uh, orientate themselves on the page again and say well actually where was the add to cart button do i have to go back to the start am i now at the bottom of the page have I been brought to the top of the page and because you've no vision it's very difficult for you to understand you know to kind of conceptualize where you are in that web page and then again with chatbots with another interruption to what you're actually doing again that might take the focus away from where you were and also I, i think I think even if you're experiencing frustration I think that's all you know a lot of time it's bad user experience in the first place you know so a bad user experience for someone you know that doesn't need assistive support is going to be an even worse user experience for for someone that has low vision or some level of disability that needs a different way to interact with that website.
2: Yeah and going back to your point about you know any CFOs listening to this I ended up not purchasing a product on that website because I got so frustrated by it and again if you're thinking about the the proportion of people who could benefit from having not only a more assistive website, but just a less crap, less crowded, less clunky website. I think it could be very beneficial. Um, I'm curious to know, as more voice control technology becomes the norm for everybody, is that beneficial to the people who do have you know extra needs or extra requirements when it comes to technology? Because uh, there's now a feature on my Outlook app, for example, on my phone where it'll automatically prompt, do I want my emails read to me? And that's without me changing a single setting. So are there benefits that are coming down the track as a result of voice-controlled and hands-free tech?
1: Oh, 100%, yeah. I mean, this is like, particularly the likes of smart speakers as well from, you know, Amazon and and Google and, and using Siri. Like even, you know, uh, voice assistants are huge because a great example is, you know, um, like something as simple as saying, you know, play play my favorite podcast and obviously it's this podcast but you know you can say you can say quite quickly with your voice to say to to, to play the news or, or things like that and that is huge but also the fact as well is that even the voices that are built into the assistance are becoming so much more natural and the interaction between the two of them is a huge enabler for for people with um, with 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 sight loss or any you know any disability because voice technology is just inherently accessible you know it's a it's an easy thing to use for 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 fully able people but also you know if you have complete sight loss something as simple as saying you know read me my book and it's just read aloud to you you know if you if you're using an amazon device or something like that or you know is the window open you know Mm -hmm. using smart technology like this or you know turn the blinds down and things like that are all all kind of what I always say is key enablers, you know, and technology is probably the biggest enabler for people with a disability. And that's kind of the mantra that we live by in in, in IA Labs and also in the National Council for, for the Blind. And probably the most the most popular item that we train at the moment when we're teaching people with disabilities to overcome, you know, obstacles in their lives is is voice technology, because it's such a simple solution. But the fact even, you know, that that, that fully sighted people are using it because it's convenient is a real indicator that you know someone would you know that might suffer from let's say eye strain or they might have dyslexia or something like that and they can just have their email read aloud to them by a click of a button and you know what's really important is that you see so much when I grew up as, as someone with cyclos the technology that was available to me was super specialized and it was really really expensive but now what you see more and more is that all of the assistive technology is just built into your, mm-hmm. your mobile phone, or it's built into like you in the example you gave there, like Outlook. It's just it's just available to everyone, and I think the numbers of people that are use assistive technology more and more is actually becoming outside of even the you know, people that have a disability because it's just a convenient tool. It's a convenient way to you know access information, which is which is wonderful. It's a great advancement in technology as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, As I mentioned there, you've put together this index which I uh, found very beneficial and it was quite eye-opening and uh, thought-provoking. For businesses who want to know where they rank in terms of accessibility or maybe want pointers on how they could be more accessible, is that something that you are actively seeking for people to reach out to you or what's the best approach in that regard?
1: Yeah, well, and that's that's exactly where the, the so the inclusion and accessibility labs company or IA that's where this came from because we found that in it it's a company that's owned by the National Council for the Blind of Ireland, and a lot of people in both, both public and private sector companies were reaching out to to NCBI and saying we need help with making our our website accessible because you know it's 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 something that's it's either the right thing to do or that the you know maybe they're covered under legislation that says that it needs to happen, so that's where where Labs was founded from, because we wanted to have a dedicated resource, you know, in Ireland where people can reach out to us and say, you know, we know that accessibility and digital inclusion is the right thing to do. We might be on the start of our journey. And this report that we've released really is an indication of where Ireland is now in their, their, you know, journey to, to digital inclusion. And IA Labs is really there to support and help companies to, to do it. So 100%, you know, if you're looking for support for your own website or your own mobile application, and I would say as well, no matter what point in development you are, if you're just at concept stage, do come to us and we'll offer advice on, and as I mentioned earlier, on user experience design for people with disabilities and all disabilities as well, or if you've released your website and you're listening now and you think, I, I'm not actually 100% sure, you know, do I have an accessibility statement on my website? Do you know, is my website accessible to people, you know, with, with sight loss or people with a, a cognitive issue? Come to us and we'll, we'll perform an audit and we give very concise feedback around, you know, it's not about aspirationally making things accessible. We'll, we'll say, here's the exact issue and here's how you would fix it. And here's a recommendation of how you would make your, your website accessible, inclusive for people with disabilities.
2: Alrighty, well, the website is ialabs.ie. Kyron Omahani, the founder, thank you so much for joining us here on News Talk.
1: Thank you so much. Cheers. Tech Talk
2: on
0: News Talk
2: with VMware. Free your employees to work more securely
0: from anywhere. Visit exertus.ie forward slash VMware.
2: Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Talk at NewsTalk.com is the email address if you want to get in touch or you'll find me on Twitter at JessKellyNT. And I'm joined in studio now by uh, a voice that you may know. Uh, from the news. But if you're on Instagram, you may be more familiar with his stunning photography. Tom Douglas, uh, you're very welcome to Tech Talk, firstly.
5: Thank you. Thank you very much. Very kind of you to say.
2: I, I'm thrilled that you're here because I, I can't remember how and when I started following you on Instagram, but I started looking at some of your prints or, or some of your images. And I was blown away by the, firstly, the colours and, you know, the the scenes that you're capturing but then also the quality of the images. And I know that you know everybody has a camera in their back pocket now in terms of their smartphone, but your images kind of do go a level above and beyond. Part of that is skill, of course, and then another part of it is the technology. Um, just tell me a little bit about your own journey, I suppose, with photography. Have you always been interested in it?
5: No, actually, um, I started in college in first year. I realized pretty quickly I did a communications degree in d c u and realized fairly quickly that a camera would be a handy addition, so I wouldn't have to be tormenting the equipment managers in the school of communications uh, after a bit of research. I picked up a canon dSLr a few years with that, and I just I fell in love with it. but like as my parents will say, and they've said this to me, some of the stuff I was producing at the start was dodgy um. But yeah, I picked that up a couple of years in college making videos, putting mm-hmm. images up and I just fell in love with photography. Um, It's a hobby that you can get your head away from everything else. Like I'm focused on the camera, the settings, the scene and the composition and nothing else. Mm-hmm. So if life starts to get on top of you a bit, you can remove yourself and... Am I, I, I explaining this right? Immerse yourself in the... The process,
2: Yeah, and I think that's an interesting point, particularly when it comes to this, not necessarily debate, but the conversation around, do you have a separate camera or do you just shoot with your phone? And I think if you shoot with your phone, you're still tapped into the world. Because if I could take a picture of you now, I could see all my notifications from Microsoft Teams or from my WhatsApp or whatever. Whereas if I have an external camera... It is just me, the camera, and whatever it is I'm shooting.
5: That's it. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm completely. My phone goes on do not disturb, and I don't touch it for an hour or two hours. It's it's great. Um, I shoot with an external Sony camera. Um, it's a couple of years old. I bought it second hand. Um, massive sensor, forty two megapixels. I think it is. So those files are massive. I think they're seventy six Megs raw. Wow. Which is enormous, but you can cut them down, crop them down. That kind of gives me the freedom to, I suppose, shoot something inside the frame and cut around it. Mm-hmm. If you get me to, to zoom into a scene or to zoom into a subject, that should be dominating the image. Cut away the, the fat, basically.
2: And, you know, you mentioned that this is something that kind of started in college, but did you ever contemplate just going around and shooting with your phone, or did you always want that separate device?
5: That's a good question, actually. Um, the, the separate device was needed, I suppose, because of what it was in college. They were teaching us how to edit raw images and file management and uh, aspects of the process like that. So we needed the and uh, external audio as well. I know mm-hmm. things have come on with smartphones in the last couple of years, but when I was started college about eight years ago, it it wasn't really there. We had some kind of janky solutions, but they just weren't great and... Working in working in radio now, I've always been kind of tuned into terrible audio. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not something I've always been into. Um, mm. I remember when I was a kid, my dad had a DSLR. I think I still have it on a shelf, an old Nikon. And I picked it up and some of the stuff out of that was shocking as well. Yeah. Um,
2: but so if for people who are the sort of uh, hobbyists, who enjoy taking photographs on their smartphone and maybe they want to have that separate device either from a shutting down point of view or just to up the their their photography game. What are the things that you need to consider when you are buying a DSLR? And is it a case of you go out and you buy the newest, latest one with the highest price point? Or, you know, is there is there something to be said for, you know, doing your research and maybe finding one that was massive years ago and could be gathering dust on somebody's shelf right now?
5: definitely first of all taking pictures of your smartphone is absolutely legitimate like i it's it's like i have a samsung phone in my hand here it is fantastic mm-hmm. for day-to-day snaps um nothing massively complicated or involved it's brilliant like if that's what you want to do and you enjoy it go for it but if you do want to pick up something with some glass attached to the front of it and that's something that smartphones can't quite replicate mm-hmm. is the effects, and I'm using vintage lenses. That the effects that some of them create are is incredible. If you do want to upgrade or take that step further or shut down away from the internet, I would definitely look at something that was big six, five, six years ago and pick that up at a reduced price from a third-hand, fourth-hand user. Make sure it's in good condition. Have like, do your research. Have a look around. The camera market's in a bit of a funny place at the moment in that. Manufacturers are finally kind of departing from a design that was introduced and kind of became mainstream in the seventies whereby you're looking at a mirror which is looking at a mirror which is looking through the lens. Now we are the sensor is projecting to a screen, and your viewfinder is essentially a screen um those mirrorless camera bodies can be really expensive, although the beginning of that. Form factor is starting to get a few years old, so you might be able to pick up the early ones for a decent price. Mm -hmm. But look, if you want to step into it and see what it's like, pick up something nice and cheap. You can always get a cheaper camera, spend on the lens and spend on the glass because that is really what's going to render your images and produce, uh, I suppose, like if you want to shoot in dark, you're looking for a brighter lens, which is slightly more expensive. If you want to shoot telephoto, you're looking at a long lens for birds, animals, um, ships, even passing in and out of Dublin port. You're looking at a long lens, which can be a bit more expensive. Uh, The non-standard lenses, the ones that don't come in kits are fantastic. The ones that come in kits are great, Mm -hmm. but uh, those are a step further.
2: And is all this available second, third, fourth hand? Because very often, and, and photography is something that I'm, interested in but I don't know a whole lot about I am someone who enjoys taking photographs but I just do it on my smartphone because it's handy and it's it's something I always have on me um but in terms of those lenses are they wide, widely available and are they widely available on the, the the sort of as I said second third fourth hand market
5: absolutely the second hand market for photography gear is great uh the competition between people and between sites is really great to see. Um just the one thing and this is something for all secondhand purchases is just make sure you're buying from somebody who is reputable and that you can trust their word. Thankfully there's a few companies across Europe actually that sell secondhand gear from whether it be film gear or digital gear and you can trust their word. They've they're in this because of their word. And if they weren't, that would their whole business model would come crashing down because if if you couldn't trust them, why mm-hmm. why would anybody buy from them? So, yeah, thankfully, like, there is the social media option. People sell bits and pieces on social media. But I find, yeah, going to a site, I trust. And if anybody wants to ask me about sites, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, ask me away. I probably use the site you're talking about, mm-hmm. and I probably had a good or bad experience with them. Um, Yeah, the market's great, uh, secondhand market. You can get seven eight nine year old DSLRS for one or 200 euro I think oh wow that's very affordable very affordable absolutely
2: um just give us your social handle there if you do want to get in touch
5: it is Tom Douglas 95 on Twitter and Tom Douglas 1995 on Instagram
2: brilliant stuff. Well, look, Tom is going to be back with us in a few weeks. Um, So if you have any questions, if you were just starting out and you want to know if something is a brilliant offer or if it's too good to be true, you can email techtalk at newstalk.com. Equally, if you have any questions about file management, editing software, anything to do with photography, do drop us an email and Tom will go through those questions and answer as many as we can. Uh, But for the moment, Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And that is all we have time for this week. If you missed any of the show, you can listen back in full on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. I'll be back on Tuesday morning with Pat Kenny, John Fardy's up next here on News Talk. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of the weekend.